Hello, my name is Dwayne Spearman, and I am the founder of Directional Ministries located here in Lynchburg, Virginia. This is a teaching ministry that is called to encourage, disciple, and challenge the people of God. Today is April the 18th. Hope that you guys are doing well today. I'm going to pick up on session two in regards to the Word of God. Last week, we used as our text Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 12. In Hebrews 4, verse number 12, it says, For the word of God is living and and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Um, Last week, what we looked at is that the word of God is essential to the Christian faith, I would submit to you that the entirety of the Christian faith rests upon the Word of God. And to adequately understand this, we need to understand some issues such as revelation, inspiration, inerrancy, and ultimately canonization. In the first of these, there has to be revelation. You understand that it's something has to be revealed in order for it to be determined to be inspired, whether or not it's inerrant, whether or not it's ultimately worth saving. So last week, what we did <clears throat> is we looked at the issue of revelation, and revelation has to be addressed first because it is first in the sequence of events. So revelation speaks to a disclosing of information that could not have been known otherwise, and when we speak to the issue of revelation, we have to look at it in two ways. There's what's called general revelation and uh, special revelation. Now, both of them are how God reveals himself to some extent. For example, general revelation is, by definition, God's disclosure of himself in nature as the creator, the sustainer of all things. And last week we looked at how God uh, reveals himself through nature, how God reveals himself through our conscience, how God reveals himself through history. Um, And then that's what we call general revelation. But there must be more than that. There must be special revelation because special revelation is when God reveals himself to men in a direct and a personal way. Um, it is information that cannot be learned any other way, but through God. Um, so for example, Adam and Eve in the garden, um, they could, they, they were able to look around. They were able to see God's creation. They were able to say something's bigger than I am. Something made this but they were not able to surmise from creation alone what God's will, what God's purpose was for their lives. God had to have eventually communicated with them in some special way beyond just general revelation. He had to speak to them in words. So the conclusion was that the ultimate form of special revelation is the Bible itself. For it is the Bible that contains all that is necessary for salvation. Okay, 
again, it's got to go beyond just general revelation. General revelation is not enough. And that leads us to our subject today, which is inspiration. Um, inspiration um, is, it literally means inspired or God breathed. In Spanish, there's a word respirar, to breathe. Um, it's where it's the word inspired, God breathed. Um, Erickson Millard, who's uh, an older theologian, puts it this way, uh, breathed into by the Holy Spirit. Uh, for example, in 1 Timothy 3.16, where it says all scripture is given by inspiration. That's that word, God breathed. That's why we refer to the Bible as God breathed. All scripture is inspired, God breathed. The inspiration spoken of here is more than just that of an artist or a musician being inspired to create something. Instead, it's a unique event in which God speaks words to man, and man in turn writes those words down. Remember, God communicates through words in some way, some shape or form. Uh, when speaking of these words, Peter said in Second Peter 2, 1-21, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the actory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard it when we were with him in the holy mount. So he's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration when they were with the Lord. You remember Moses and Elijah came down and, uh, you know, Peter offered to build, you know, a, a, a booth or whatever. And the Lord said, hear him. Uh, and then in verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. And I want to unpack this verse because it's essential to what I'm saying here. We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arises in our hearts. So what he's saying is we have something that's even more sure than just our eyewitness account. And he says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is, is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So what Peter is saying there, even though you have our eyewitness testimony as to what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, when God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, you have even a more sure word of prophecy that you'd be wise to take heed to as a light that shines in the darkness. And he's talking about prophecy. He's talking about the written word of God that you and I hold in our hands. Specifically, he's referring to the Old Testament prophecies. And he's saying, the word you hold in your hand is of more value than our witness, our eyewitness account. And he said, knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, it means what it means. It says what it says. It, 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 you, we can both be wrong, but we can't both be right. Um, so that's Peter speaking in regards to 
what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. Their testimony was not to be compared to the testimony of the Bible itself. In other words, the Bible, by its own claim to inspiration, is always the superior witness. So if you're involved in something, find chapter and verse. If you're confused about something that's going on, find chapter and verse. If you want the Lord to lead, find chapter and verse. Now, it may not be there verbatim, word for word, but there's principles found in the Bible. There's, you know, it's just like people would come to me when I pastor and say, well, the Lord's telling me to do this. Well, that's a direct violation of Scripture. The Lord would not tell you to do something that would violate His Word. And that leads us into the different views of inspiration. And there are several uh, views in that regard. First, there is the natural view. Now, the natural view totally denies any supernatural element in the process. Those who hold this view merely see the Bible as a great work of art on the level of Shakespeare or any other great artist. In other words, nothing supernaturally happened. Okay, No supernatural element in the process. The Bible is just up there with Shakespeare or any other author. The second view is that of the partial inspiration. What that says is not all the scriptures are inspired, but some of the scriptures are. As you can tell, the problem with this one is who determines which ones are and which ones aren't. Well, that happens a lot in our church today, our churches today. The third view is what is called conceptual inspiration. In this view, it's just the concept behind the message or the concept behind the words that are inspired, not the overall message. You know, God is love. You know, that's what we need to take away from that story. So it's conceptual revelation. And then the fourth view is what some would call encounter inspiration. In other words, the Bible becomes inspired to each individual reader as they encounter some perceived truth. Unfortunately, that leads to your truth, my truth, what is truth. And finally, there's the real view of inspiration that we really need to take to the bank, and it's plenary verbal inspiration. This view <clears throat> is that not only is the message of the Bible inspired, the concepts of the Bible inspired, but the very words of that message are inspired. The word verbal actually means by means of words or word for word. You know, Jesus, <clears throat> speaking in Luke uh, 16, uh, 17, said, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. In other words, Everything in the Bible will happen the way that it is supposed to happen. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, the Bible says, For verily I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall by no wise pass from the law until all of it be fulfilled. In other words, not the smallest letter or the smallest stroke, the equivalent of a dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. Everything written will 
take place. Everything written is inspired. Verbally inspired. That means every single word will not fail. Every word is expired. Um, <clears throat> the word for letter <clears throat> in uh, Matthew 5.18 um, when it speaks of uh, uh, the stroke of a letter of the law will not fail uh, is the word iota. And the word for stroke in the Hebrew uh, is korea. The iota or the jot, as it is sometimes called, refers to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Literally, just to simplify it, you know, a word can have a tittle or a jot that totally changes the meaning of that word. And you need to remember that as you're reading Hebrew. The closest thing we would have to it in our English language would be the cross, the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. <clears throat> if you didn't put a dot above an I, it would look like an L. You know, the same thing with a T. Now, some would argue <clears throat> that verbal inspiration of necessity requires dictation. Grudem is quick to point out that even though the words in the Bible are indeed God's words, we are talking about the result more than the actual words themselves. He further points out that God actually used a wide variety of processes to bring about the desired result. But the bottom line is you're going to have to go back to dictation. In other words, God said it, they wrote it down. Now, you can argue like Grudem that the result is what <clears throat> is the most important, but the result can only be arrived at by writing down the words. It has to go back to dictation. I see no, no way around that. I mean, it's obvious from the text at times that the author did indeed pen the words verbatim as they were spoken to him. For example, in Revelation 2.1, it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I mean, it's obvious from the text that the apostle John was told emphatically what to write, and it was exactly what the angel told him to write. So in the end, it means that God made sure that the human personalities, and certainly you look at the personality of John as compared to the personality of Peter as compared to the personality of Paul, they were all different. So God used their individual writing styles and directed them to write exactly what he wanted them to write. So we believe in verbal inspiration, word for word. And then we believe in verbal plenary uh, inspiration. Plenary just means full or all. In other words, we believe in plenary verbal all of the words are God-breathed. All of the words come from God. That's what we believe in regards to inspiration. Next time we're together, we'll look at some proofs of inspiration. Hope that you are blessed. God bless you guys. Have a great day. Remember, God loves you, wants the best for you, working all things out for your good.